You're listening to American Songcatcher, tracing the roots of American music from its cultured past to today's artists playing it forward. I'm folk musician Nicholas Edward Williams. In the hill country of southern Arkansas, J.R. Cash was born the fourth of seven children on February 26, 1932, in the small town of Kingsland. Initially, his mother Carrie and his father Ray couldn't agree on what to name him. Carrie wanted John after her father, and Ray favored Ray Jr., so they compromised on the initials J.R. Carrie and Ray were sharecroppers who could barely make enough to feed seven children, and their hardships grew as the Great Depression found its stride. Like many other industries, the agricultural economy was ravaged. It was a pilot community to reclaim barren land and to better the lives of underprivileged dirt farmers. Your government, and I say to you, you cannot borrow your way out of debt, but you can invest your way into a sounder future. Well, the farmer prayed for a better year, and the crops were good like the Lord did here, but his barn burnt down with winter near. In 1935, the New Deal, put forth by President Franklin D. Roosevelt, created the resettlement program, which incentivized farmers from the hill country, like the Cash family, to relocate where the soil was more fertile in northeastern Arkansas. They took the offer, and landed in Dias Colony in a five-room house, clearing 20 acres of their own to plant cotton and other seasonal crops. First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt stood on the porch of the administration building in the center of the colony and gave a speech at the opening, and J.R. got to shake hands with her. Two years after her speech, the Mississippi River flooded and broke the levees, which forced the Cash family and many other residents of the colony to evacuate until the water receded, which decades later inspired J.R. to write the song Five feet high and rising. How high is the water, mama? Two feet high and rising. How high is the water, papa? She said it's two feet high and rising. Starting at age five, J.R. worked first as a water boy, serving his siblings and parents out in the field, occasionally eating cotton buds, despite his mother's warnings that they'd upset his stomach. By age eight, he was able to pick cotton side by side with his family, dragging around a heavy canvas sack that by the end of the day could grow to be 200 or more pounds of cotton. It wasn't complicated, he later wrote in his memoir. You just parked the wagon at one end of the rows and went to it. It was exhausting work, and even as a child he had back pain and cuts on his hands from the sharp cotton balls. I got cotton in the bottom land. It's up and growing, and I got a good stand. As a respite from the harsh reality of field work and poor economic conditions, Music was foundational to the Cash family. They congregated and sang the gospel every Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and Wednesday evening with the local community. They sang around the dinner table at Jarrah's grandparents' house. They sang songs passed through his mother Carrie's family, from sunup to sundown in the field. And during lunch breaks and in the evenings, she would play the upright piano in the house and lead the family in spirituals, folk songs, ballads, and hymns until the children went to bed. I'll be old 
addition to the spiritual music that he learned through his mother's playing and singing, JR also discovered secular music on the family's battery-powered Sears radio. His oldest brother, Roy, who was actually the first Cash family member to become a paid musician while performing around Arkansas with his band, the Dixie Rhythm Ramblers, was the one who introduced JR to country music. He was 11 years older, but JR learned to share Roy's affection for country singers like Jimmy Rogers and Gene Autry, but his favorite act would broadcast five days a week from nearly a thousand miles away on the Texas-Mexico border with XET on the border radio. A family of voices known as the Carter family would trickle into the broadcast, including a young girl that would become the love of his life, though it would take nearly two decades before they would meet. In other words, this is station XCT, Monterey, down Mexico way. Now here's that well-known and better-loved family of radio, the Carter family. A.P., Sarah, Maybell, Jeanette, Helen, June, and Anita. And it looks like we're on the sunny side. Keep on the sunny side, always on the sunny side. Keep on the sunny side of life. At age 12, the person that J.R. looked up to most was his brother Jack, who was just two years older. Jack was the model child in the family. He was smart, funny, a hard worker, did what he was asked, and despite being young, Jack was deeply religious, with ambitions to become a preacher one day. One Saturday morning, when J.R. was 12, he asked Jack to go with him to their favorite fishing hole. Jack said he couldn't because he was working a job cutting oak trees into posts, which he earned $3 a day for. J.R. begged him to play hooky, but Jack refused, so he went alone. He didn't catch anything, not even a bite, so he started walking home. On the way, J.R.'s father, Ray, pulled up in a panic, yelling and asking where he'd been and that there was an accident and Jack had been badly hurt. Tragically, he'd been pulled into the table saw and was cut from his ribs down to his groin. And a week later, Jack passed away in the Cash family home at just 14 years young. J.R. woke up early on the morning of the funeral, grabbed a shovel, and assisted the workers in digging Jack's grave. As they all sang powerful spiritual songs at the service with tears strewn about, JR's clothes were dirty and he was shoeless after stepping on a nail and his foot swelled up. Afterwards, spending time alone became JR's coping mechanism, throwing himself into books of American history and the Old West, and he developed an interest in writing to process his grief through poems, stories, sketches, and songs. As he wrote in his autobiography many years later, after Jack's death, I felt like I'd died too. I had no other friend. Instead of saying, what would Jesus do? The most important question in his life then became, which is Jack's way? Which direction would he have taken? The day after the funeral, the Cash family got back in the field and picked cotton for 10 hours. so after Jack's death, J.R. was walking down a dirt road when he heard music coming from an old wooden house nearby. Curious to see if it was a record playing or someone in real life, he walked up to the front door and saw a kid around his age that he recognized from school named Jesse Barnhill. Jesse had polio, so he had a hard time walking and his right arm was paralyzed, but amazingly, he was able to play guitar and well. Jesse tried to teach J.R. some chords, but he didn't take to it, so instead, J.R. would sing over his guitar playing 
memorized from songs that he heard on records. The two became very close friends, and JR helped Jesse find confidence and embrace who he was in the public eye. And Jesse helped JR establish a foundation, a musical collaboration. Once again, and here comes Skip Skipper and all the Stokely gang on the Stokely High Noon Roundup. Take the ring from your finger, set me free, I'm done. You won't need me no longer, you have found the one you love. In the summer of 1947, now 15 years old, J.R., Jesse, and another friend named Harry got wind that one of their favorite live radio shows, Stokely's High Noon Roundup, was coming to Dias. The day of the show, the three arrived two hours early in hopes to find a way to meet the headliners, the Leuven Brothers, who had just recently changed their name and hadn't made any commercial recordings, but had been performing gospel music on the radio throughout Tennessee. A black Cadillac pulled up to the venue, and Charlie Leuven walked right over to the boys to ask where he could find the restroom. JR said that he could escort him, fully intending to find all the answers of how he could be famous in the music business, like the Leuven brothers, but couldn't muster the courage to even speak as they started walking. Despite that, he felt a sense of awe next to the star, strolling in silence. After the concert, as the Leuven brothers left in their Cadillac, Charlie waved at JR, and for a glittering moment, he felt that he was a star too. Now, everybody's gonna have religion and glory. Everybody's gonna be singing that story. Everybody's gonna have a wonderful time up there. Oh, glory, hallelujah, brother. Despite his ambitions to become a successful singer, JR had no clue where to begin. In those days, most musicians got their start performing on local radio, but the Dias colony was stationless, and to boot, he was painfully shy, and his father scoffed at the idea, which didn't help his confidence. But knowing how much he wanted to have a life in music, JR's mother Carrie put him in situations to get over his fear, like the many times that she had him sing in front of the entire congregation at church, which he later said was the most horrible experience of my life. But as JR matured into a young man that summer of 1947, so too did his voice. One day, Carrie was in the kitchen and heard a new popular gospel song being sung outside called Everybody's Gonna Have a Wonderful Time Up There. She popped her head out the window and was overjoyed to find that it was J.R.'s voice, which had deepened nearly overnight, exclaiming, God's hand is on you. You have a gift. You are going to sing. I got a feeling called the blues, old thoughts, since my baby said goodbye. Carrie wanted to ensure that he had his best foot forward, but JR was hesitant to taking singing lessons for several years. Finally, he relented at her insistence, and Carrie was able to set aside a few weeks' worth of sessions at $3 a pop after using their new washing machine to clean some of the teachers' clothes at his school. After three lessons of hard pressing JR to sing songs that he didn't want to learn, the exhausted teacher finally asked him what he'd like to sing. It was 1949 and Hank Williams' lovesick blues was taking over the airwaves. After belting the song out, JR's teacher closed the piano and told him the lesson was over. She told him to follow his natural singing voice. She told him to follow his natural singing voice and never, ever let someone change his style. I can see me when I was 17 years old standing in the end of the Dice High School gymnasium 
At the senior class graduation, I was a junior at the time, and the next year I graduated, they called on me to sing a special, they called it for the graduation, for the commencement exercises. So, and I sang this song. This was, I guess this was when I was looking for myself. But I never forgot that because it was one of my first public singing occasions. And I've sung this song mainly to myself ever since I was 17 years old because of those memories. Drink to me only with thine eyes And I will pledge with mine JR's confidence skyrocketed. Singing in church was now a breeze. He became more popular around school as both a singer and a writer. He was elected class vice president, acted in school plays, and classmates would even pay him to do their essays and other writing homework. He won first prize of $5 at a local talent show, and he'd win nearly every other talent contest that he entered. Now in his senior year, though, he was faced with what to do after high school. And the only option was to get out of Dias and out of a life of farming, as far as J.R. and his friends were concerned. In 1950, he graduated high school and found a job picking strawberries, but it turned fruitless after just one day. Then, a local barber mentioned that he was heading to Pontiac, Michigan, for a job opening at an auto body plant. So J.R. joined him. But after three weeks, he'd had enough of the bustling city life and hitchhiked home back to Arkansas. On Sunday, June 25th, communist forces attacked the Republic of Korea. This attack has made it clear beyond all doubt that the international communist movement is willing to use arm invasion to conquer independent nations. They're fighting in Korea, the boys are called to go to meet the enemy as it comes across the line. God, please protect America in this troubled time. Just two weeks after the Korean War officially began, JR decided that the best way to both get out of Dias and appease his father was to enlist. The United States Air Force seemed like the safest bet, but when he went to sign on the dotted line, he needed a first name, not initials. Though no one had called him John up to that point, that's what he wrote, and filled in simply R for his middle name, and so he went by John R. Cash from then on. I'm a train they call the city of New Orleans. I'll be gone 500 miles when the day is done. After seven weeks of intense physical and mental training at Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas, John had excelled in several areas of his aptitude test and applied to be a radio operator because he liked the sound of it and was accepted. The next stop was Biloxi, Mississippi for six months of training, which is conveniently located just about 90 miles from the Big Easy, New Orleans. Nearly everyone in the barracks spent their free weekends there, seeking great bars and fast women, except for John who felt like he was in his element for the first time and didn't want to risk his progress in the force, nor tempt his religious beliefs. He felt like what he was studying was heroic and spy movie worthy, and he managed to finish the Morse code course several weeks ahead of schedule, much to the chagrin of his classmates, who all began to see John as the smart one. Aside from a few occasions when he caved in to peer pressure and hit Bourbon Street, John spent his weekends listening to the radio and singing with a few other Southern boys. He'd been so focused during basic training that he hardly listened to the radio. But in Biloxi, he discovered his new favorite country singer, who was also a steadfast fan of Jimmy Rogers, a man named Hank Snow. Here's Hank Snow and the Rainbow Ranch Boys. 
wheels are rolling down the track Means you're too loving daddy ain't coming back Cause I'm moving on Invited to join an elite group of radio operators, John was given the choice for duty in Alaska or Landsberg, Germany, and chose the latter so that he could see Europe. First, he had four more months of training in San Antonio, this time at Brooks Air Force Base. The thought of a life partner was increasingly important to John, who was 19 years old at this point. Despite his complete lack of confidence with women, since he'd never been in a serious relationship, John went everywhere around town searching for love. In the summer of 1951, He found a roller rink and dragged a friend along with him. Though it was near closing time, they rented skates and noticed a group of girls. One in particular, with hazel eyes and light bronze skin, was the prettiest girl that he'd ever seen. Like a magnet, as the voice over the loudspeaker announced the last skate, John rolled right over to her and managed to knock her to the ground. Luckily, she'd been hoping that he'd approach her. She was 17 years old, and her name was Vivian Liberto. He told her that she could call him Johnny, then asked her to skate with him and pretended that he was a bad skater so that she would hold on to him, then was compelled to sing a pop song a cappella called I Still Feel the Same About You by Georgia Gibbs. For the next three weeks, they spent nearly every day either talking on the phone or being together until Johnny left for his assignment in Germany. While stationed, his first bunkmate was a Catholic man named Ben Perea, who would become a lifelong friend. Johnny learned all about Catholicism, and they'd sing popular country songs by Hank Williams, Eddie Arnold, and most often, Jimmy Davis's version of You Are My Sunshine, because it was calming and easy for them to sing in harmony. And I hung my head and cried You are my sunshine, my only sunshine You make me happy when skies are gray When he wasn't singing or working, Johnny was in his bunk, writing incessantly to Vivian every day, and had a framed 8x10 picture of her hanging on his wall with hands-off written on it. Over the course of his deployment, their back-and-forth letters would easily surpass a thousand, likely due to the Dear John wave of women writing to their beloved soldiers that they'd found someone else back home. On base, there was also a movie theater, which Johnny frequented. He saw a film there called Inside the Walls of Folsom Prison that detailed corruption, riots, escape attempts, and the sadistic management of the warden there. That film gave way to a few lines that Johnny wrote down, a small piece of what would become a hit song less than a decade later and the catalyst for his many performances in prisons over the years to come. However, at the time, Johnny didn't even have a guitar, let alone the gall to be a real songwriter. Joseph Stalin. His death, March 5th, 1953, marked the end of a long page in Soviet history. The professional revolutionary who rose from humble beginnings to become dictator of more than one-sixth of the earth. I'm so glad at last there's peace in Korea. Yes, I'm so glad at last there's peace in Korea. Don't you know I'm so glad at last there's peace in Korea because President Eisenhower has done just what he said. Johnny rose to a staff sergeant rank and was one of only a handful of soldiers who were tasked with monitoring and translating communications from the Russians that were supporting the Korean People's Army, who eventually created North Korea. In 1953, 
He was actually the first radio operator outside of the Soviet Union to discover that their dreadful leader, Joseph Stalin, who had overseen the killings of between 8 and 20 million of his own people, had a massive heart attack and died. That important discovery led to a temporary lapse in what had become the start of the near 50-year-long Cold War. And Johnny wasn't allowed to talk about it for years because of his top secret clearance. Johnny's three years in Germany were the farthest that he'd ever been from home. And ironically, it was there that the seeds of his dream to become a professional singer started to actually become feasible. He bought a tape recorder to track his progress and formed a group with some other guys in the barracks, calling themselves the Landsberg Barbarians. After closely studying the guitar player among them, Johnny sprung for a $5 German guitar with the intention of mastering it, but it was much harder than anticipated, and he ended up quietly playing in the background while singing lead instead. The group even played some live shows in town, which gave him a chance to learn how to be a frontman. As he remembered it, we were terrible, but that low-and-brow beer will make you feel like you're great. We'd take our instruments to these honky-tonks and play until they threw us out or a fight started. Cause I love you, love you, I love you. Can't help it that I feel the way I do. In 1953, over a year before he would be honorably discharged, and two days after his 21st birthday, Johnny mailed Vivian an engagement ring. Several months later, after attempts to move her to Munich, he wrote to Vivian's father, asking for her hand in marriage. Her father kindly dismissed the request and encouraged Johnny to spend more time with Vivian when he's back from the war, since they'd only seen each other for three weeks beforehand. When he was asked by the Air Force to re-enlist, Johnny declined. At the start of his long journey home, on a train ride from Landsberg, he wrote his first piece of writing to be published in the military newspaper Stars and Stripes, a poem titled Hey Porter, about missing home amid his accomplishments abroad. He traded Tennessee for Arkansas because it sounded better in his rhyme scheme. During the summer of 1954, on July 4th, Johnny arrived in Memphis to meet Vivian and the whole Cash family after being gone for three years. They headed back to Dias, where Ray and Carrie had sold their land and opted for a house close to the town center. Johnny was fixated on getting approval from Vivian's father to have her hand in marriage and borrowed his parents' car to drive to San Antonio. After agreeing to get married in a Catholic church and raise their children as Catholics, his request was finally granted. He left Vivian to begin making wedding plans, dropped off the car in Dias, and hopped on a bus back to Memphis to meet his oldest brother, Roy, who took Johnny to a popular appliance shop called Home Equipment Store that offered jobs to ex-servicemen, then went to the auto shop where Roy worked and introduced Johnny to two mechanics that played music. His timing couldn't have been more perfect because something big was happening in Memphis that would change the course of popular music forever. Since you're listening to stories of music history here on American Songcatcher, I wanted to share another podcast that's been hitting the musical sweet spot for me over the last year, 
called Basic Folk, founded by Cindy House, a well-versed public radio host and music curator with decades of experience. Basic Folk is a weekly program that features complex conversations about the human experience. Cindy approaches interviews with warmth, humor, and insightful questions while talking with many of the top names in American Roots music today. You can hear over 150 shows featuring folks like Chris Thiele, Martin Sexton, Aoife O'Donovan of I'm With Her, Andrew Marlin of Watch House, formerly known as Mandolin Orange, Amethyst Kia, John Hyatt, Valerie June, and many, many more. Subscribe to Basic Folk wherever you get your podcasts. I highly recommend it. Now, back to the program. The day after Johnny landed in Memphis to meet his family, a teenager named Elvis Aaron Presley was attempting to cut a few songs inside a teeny building downtown called Sun Studios, run by Sam Phillips. Phillips was used to white musicians coming in and performing country and pop, and though this young man had an interesting vocal tone, it wasn't anything special for most of the session. Then, Elvis threw out the first chords and lines of a song by blues musician Arthur Big Boy Crudup, called That's All Right, and the hair on Sam's neck stood up. The way that he was playing it was different, fast, with an infectious rhythm and a catchy melody. Something unique was happening right in front of Phillips's eyes, and after several years of black musicians, such as Sister Rosetta Tharp and Memphis Minnie laying the foundation, this moment was regarded as the big bang of rock and roll, when Elvis would take the sound mainstream. Wish I was tied to Bertha Instead of this ball and chain I'm going to Memphis That's right, Lord Johnny found a cheap, dusty, and hot second-floor apartment with a communal kitchen on the third floor, bought a decent car with some money saved up, and with a job secured, he was ready to start a new life in Memphis. The only thing left to do was to head to San Antonio and get Vivian and the two were married in a Catholic church by her uncle on August 7th, 1954, and they hit the road back to Memphis right after the reception. Within days of arriving, Johnny heard a song that was exploding on the radio called That's All Right by someone named Elvis Presley. And though he couldn't figure out if it was country or blues music, he loved the sound, and his ears perked up even more when the DJ proudly announced that it was the product of Memphis's own Sun Records. Selling appliances door-to-door was daunting. I was the worst salesman in the world, Johnny later said. Additionally, he wanted to find work at the local radio station to boost his chances at performing. The programming director insisted on training, so Johnny started taking morning classes at Keegan's School of Broadcasting twice a week before his sales job started. He thought about the two guys that his brother Roy introduced him to and went back to the auto shop. Marshall Grant and Luther Perkins were nearly Roy's age, but were glad to see his younger brother again who left an impression on them when first meeting. They all got together to play some gospel music at Marshall's house, and it was evident early on that none of them played guitar particularly well, but that Johnny was the leader. So every Friday or Saturday night, they'd run through songs while their wives played cards in the kitchen. And slowly, the two mechanics started believing that following Johnny's passion for a music career wasn't such a bad idea. Blue moon, blue moon, blue moon. 
keep shining bright. Blue moon, keep on shining bright. She gonna bring me back my baby tonight. Blue moon, keep shining bright. Johnny and Vivian went to see Elvis perform on the back of a flatbed truck outside of a drugstore not long after that. Since he only had one song out, his trio played That's Alright in a spin on bluegrass legend Bill Monroe's Blue Moon of Kentucky over and over. Johnny and Vivian also went to see him the night afterward at a dance hall near City Limits, and he mentioned Sun Studios to Elvis's guitar player, Scotty Moore, who simply said, You ought to call Sam Phillips. He's looking for new talent. Johnny wasn't ready to make a record yet, but he wanted to be. So the next time that he went to Marshall's house, Johnny insisted that they run through songs multiple times instead of going from song to song. They could tell that his tone had changed to a more serious one, and they were on board. But to stand out, they needed to fill out their sound. So Luther found an electric guitar, Marshall started teaching himself how to play upright bass, and they brought in a steel guitar player named Red Kernodal. Their lack of talent made for a simple rhythm, with Luther and Marshall essentially playing the same note together while Johnny shuffled between them, creating a vastly different sound than other country or rhythm and blues artists at the time. Well, I... That rhythm would later be called Boom Chicka Boom and other things, though it merely felt like they were amateurs at the time. Still, it was a sound. Johnny went into the kitchen to tell Vivian of their progress, but she also had news they'd be having a child. Marshall, Luther, and the other wives cheered, and after only three months in Memphis, everything was coming together. A lot of money. My treasures were untold. And like a fool, I coveted my silver and my gold. By October of that year, Johnny was ready for Sun Studios. Only Sam Phillips was up to his ears traveling and promoting records for Elvis, who was making his Grand Ole Opry debut that same month. Johnny called Sun Studios often through November and into December, until the receptionist finally let him know that Phillips would be in on Monday. Johnny sat outside until he arrived and told him in, earn and told him in earnest that he wanted to make a record. There was something in the tall young man that Phillips sensed, so he allowed him to audition. Johnny sang Hank Williams and Hank Snow and most everything he knew for nearly three hours. Phillips liked what he heard and told Johnny to come back with the band and the right song to record. Well, I was there when it happened, and so I guess I ought to know. Yes, I know when Jesus saved me, saved my soul. The very moment he forgave me, made me. Three weeks later, Johnny, Marshall, Luther, and Red showed up at Sun Studios and auditioned an old gospel song that they'd been rehearsing called I Was There When It Happened. Johnny hoped that, infused with their style, it would be considered the right song. After three takes, Red was so nervous that he couldn't play, and he bailed out. Phillips had them play it a few times as a trio, then said, There's something squirrely about you guys. I've never heard anything like it before. It's different. But I'm not going to record a gospel song. I can't sell them. He especially sensed something unique in Johnny's voice, that he wasn't trying to sound like anyone but himself. Phillips told them to come back with an original song. At the next rehearsal, Johnny pulled out a piece of paper that had an old poem of his written on it, called Hey Porter, and they got to work. Hey Porter, hey Porter, would you tell me the time? How much longer will it be till we cross that Mason-Dixon line? 
At daylight, would you tell that engineer to slow it down? Or better still, just stop the train, cause I want to look around. It took a few months until Johnny, Luther, and Marshall were able to come up with the music and melody for Hey Porter. But before they had a chance to visit Sun Studios again, they were offered their first gig. While rehearsing at the auto shop, a woman overheard them playing and asked if they could perform spiritual music for her Bible study group at a missionary fundraiser. Though the group was small, it was their first time performing for an audience, and they rehearsed about six tunes, including gospel songs like Peace in the Valley and I Was There When It Happened, a few Christmas hymns, and Johnny's own Belshazzar, about a Babylonian king from the Bible. But one thing was missing, a band name. Johnny said, since Luther was from Mississippi, Marshall from North Carolina, and Johnny from Arkansas, they should be called the Tennessee Three. They chuckled, but they liked the sound of it. He had concubines and wives, he called his Babylon paradise. On his throne he drank and ate, but for Belshazzar it was getting late. After Christmas in early 1955, the Tennessee Three finally had a chance to play Hey Porter for Phillips, who agreed that it was a song worth recording. But to put out a record at that time, you needed two sides. So he again asked the trio to come back with another original song. Vivian was five months pregnant and had been having a hard time understanding how Johnny and two mechanics were going to make a living in the music business, but she came around when Johnny returned with the news that they were cutting a record. He got to work right away, and within 15 minutes, he had lyrics for a song called You're Gonna Cry, 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 to Vivian's amazement. But another song stuck out that Johnny wanted for the B-side of his first single. It was called Folsom Prison Blues. The Tennessee Three had their first formal chance in the studio about a month after auditioning with Hay Porter. They tried four dismal attempts at cutting Folsom Prison Blues, along with a few other songs they'd been practicing, to no avail. Their take of Hay Porter was the only one chosen for the record. And again, Phillips said that they needed another song to complete the record. You're gonna cry, 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 and you cry alone When everyone's forgotten and you're left on your own You're gonna cry, cry, cry To stay in Phillips's favor, they needed to nail their second session. And when they brought You're Gonna Cry, Cry, Cry to the studio, it took nearly 35 attempts. But Phillips found the take that he wanted, and their first single was ready. On April 1st, 1955, they were given a contract by Sun Records that had a few stipulations. First, Phillips felt strongly that Johnny was a frontman, so the contract read Johnny Cash and the Tennessee Two, which Luther and Marshall were fine with. Phillips also changed the title of their first single to Cry, 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 and urged them to play as many gigs as they could, whether it was at schoolhouses, picnics, town socials, or rodeos, but not to play Hey Porter or Cry, Cry, Cry until Memphis DJs put them on the air. Hey Porter was unveiled in May of 1955, which created a good buzz, but it was Cry, 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 released later that year, that would hit number 14 on the Billboard charts and sell over 100,000 copies in southern states alone. And a Louisiana hayride! Just a plain old hillbilly band with a plain old country style. With the reception of Cry Cry Cry, which was selling more than Elvis's latest single, Johnny was invited to perform on the popular Louisiana Hayride radio program. Boasting 50,000 watts over 200 plus stations across the country, it was prime exposure to the record buying market. He was then offered a regular spot on the Hayride 
and though it was a 250-mile journey each way, it was highly coveted. The rigorous back and forth caused Johnny to pause and think about finally quitting his sales job to go full-time, though Luther and Marshall hadn't considered it quite yet. Sam Phillips hired an agent to organize a tour with Elvis, Johnny, and another young artist named Carl Perkins, a pioneer of the rockabilly sound, who got an idea for a song after Johnny told a story backstage on tour, and it would become the first Sun Records song to sell a million copies. Well, it's one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready, now go, cat, go, but don't. The story for the song came from Johnny's time spent in Germany. There was a black airman that he knew, named C.V. White, who would dress to the nines in his Sunday best while off base. One night out on the town, Johnny supposedly stepped on C.V.'s military regulation shoes, and he replied, hey man, don't step on my blue suede shoes. Johnny looked down, confused, insisting that his shoes were black and not suede, to which C.V. said, tonight, they're blue suede. That night backstage, Johnny told Carl Perkins that he should write a song about it. Perkins didn't know how to write a song about shoes, but he added parts of a traditional children's song called One for the Money, and the first mainstream rockabilly record was made. Perkins, Mr. Blue Suede Shoes in person, and he's coming to Memphis, Tennessee, direct from the Perry Como TV show. Carl Perkins will rock and roll into Overton Park Shell for a great show Friday night, the 1st of June, 8 p.m. Hear him sing Blue Suede Shoes, Honey Don't, and his sensational new Bop in the Blues. There'll be Johnny Cash in the Tennessee 2 with Cry, Cry, Cry and Folsom Prison Blues. Rock and Roll Ruby with Warren Smith. The new sensation Roy Orbison is... Phillips now had three of the hottest young artists in the country, and Nashville was all up in a tangle. Though the first recording of Blue Suede Shoes sold very well for Perkins, it would be heavily overshadowed when his friend Elvis recorded his own version later that same year. For Johnny, Phillips needed another record ready for when Cry 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 would peak. The song that he chose for the B-side was one that Johnny already attempted recording, one that he had started after seeing a film a few years back in Germany called Inside the Walls of Folsom Prison. And when he heard a song written in 1953 by Gordon Jenkins and sung by Beverly Marr called Crescent City Blues, sparks flew. I hear the train a-coming, it's rolling round the bend. And I ain't been kissed, Lord, since I don't know when. Not uncommon at the time, Johnny took most of the lyrics and melody to write Folsom Prison Blues, and in 1955, it was ready to be recorded for a second time, after Phillips suggested that Johnny perform it while on tour. The song became his second hit, and peaked at number four on the Billboard Country Western bestsellers chart. I hear the train a-comin', it's rollin' around the bend, and I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when. I'm stuck in Folsom Prison, and time keeps dragging on. The A-side of that record was released before Folsom Prison Blues, titled So Doggone Lonesome. Though it didn't do as well as his B-side counterpart, Johnny wrote it with one of his favorite country singers in mind, Ernest Tubb. When Tubb recorded the song a few years later in 1957, Johnny reportedly said he finally had made it as an artist when Ernest Tubb sang the words that he wrote. Johnny would go on to perform So Doggone Lonesome for his first television appearance in 1956 when he was invited to the Grand Old Opry and introduced by none other than his earliest musical hero, Hank Snow. So good that he's one of the biggest new stars in country music today. Is that so? Yes, sir. Come on over and meet him. Johnny Cash. I'd love to. 
Johnny's debut that evening at the Grand Ole Opry was formidable for many reasons. Having listened to WSM radio all those years as a child, hearing all those bright stars, and now here he was on the same stage in the Church of Country Music. The infamous nickname that followed him throughout the years as the Man in Black was coined that night as his entire outfit was black. But the most important moment came when he met a country singer named Carl Smith, who introduced Johnny to his musical partner and his wife, June Carter. But you let's forget the foolishness and you introduce Mama Maybelle and all your entire family, will you, huh? All right, I'd like to, Helen, Anita, Mama Maybelle, myself, I'm gonna sing a little song. It's called Hits My Lazy Day. Johnny was starstruck. He'd heard June on the radio with the famous Carter family since he was a kid, and always loved her performances and her voice. Not only that, he was quite taken with her beauty, and June would later write that the feeling was mutual, that she was, quote, captivated by his black eyes that shone like agates, and with his kind and gentle presence on stage. However, as she told Rolling Stone in 2000, it was not a convenient time for me to fall in love with him, and it was not a convenient time for him to fall in love with me. I keep a close watch on this heart of mine I keep my eyes wide open all the time Johnny was invited to the Opry just as his biggest hit yet was taking over country and pop radio stations titled I Walk the Line which managed to jump and stay at number one on the country music charts for six weeks straight selling two million copies The B-side was a song that he wrote honoring a phrase that Sam Phillips constantly stated about the importance of having rhythm in a record. Johnny thought that writing a song about the rhythm with the rhythm would boast well. Hey, get rhythm. When you get the blues, come on, get rhythm. When you get the blues. In December of 1956, Carl Perkins was at Sun Studio working on a record to follow up Blue Suede Shoes. His backing group was Jerry Lee Lewis on piano, who was relatively unknown at the time as well as Carl's brother, Jay, on upright bass, and W.S. Holland on drums, who would eventually join Johnny to make the Tennessee Three. Though Elvis had been bought out by RCA Victor Records just a month prior, he stopped by and joined in with Carl and his backing group, while legendary producer Jack Clement stood behind the controls along with Sam Phillips. Johnny Cash happened to drop by the studio soon after, and a jam of sorts ensued while the tape kept running. You know what, you know it's all for the tendons, take it off. Oh, let's take it off, put it good tip on, take it off, put it good tip on. Oh, oh, let's see. 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 Johnny stood furthest away from the microphone and sang in a higher pitch to blend in with Elvis on most of the tracks, and about half of what they played was gospel music. But Johnny added a few of his hit songs, in a rendition of the Merle Travis mining tune, 16 Tons, while Elvis also sang a few of his hits from that year, including Perkins's Blue Suede Shoes. They played When the Saints Go Marching In, and the old spirituals, Peace in the Valley, and Softly and Tenderly, 
and they talked about how Elvis, Johnny, and Jerry had all lost brothers. A photo was taken after Phillips called the local paper, and they were christened the Million Dollar Quartet in the article the next day. It was the first and only time that these four legends would sing together. By 1957, the country music world hailed Johnny as the top artist in the field. His debut album, Johnny Cash with His Hot and Blue Guitar, was released by Sun Records in 1957, a rare occasion for Sam Phillips, who primarily focused on singles. Johnny was able to sneak in a gospel tune from his early days with the Tennessee Two with I Was There When It Happened, as well as Hank Williams's I Heard That Lonesome Whistle Blow, and all four of the singles that had done so well over the two years prior. His popularity increased rapidly, and looming just around the bend was over a decade's worth of even more monumental success. However, it would be coupled with arguably the most poignant and tumultuous low points of his personal life. The man in black would dance with the temptations of being a star on the road, destroy his relationships, and escape death more than once. All alone, I bear the shame I'm a number, not a name. I heard that long, long, whistle blows. All I do is sit and cry. Some people say a man is made out of mud. A poor man's made out of muscle and blood. Muscle and blood and skin and bones A mind that's weak and a back that's strong You load six and that's all for part one of episode six in our second season, covering the incredible story of Johnny Cash. Stay tuned for part two, releasing in a few weeks. If you'd like to support this program, but you don't want to commit to monthly contributions, no worries. You can send a one-time donation via Venmo or PayPal at American Songcatcher, all one word, or click the links in the show notes. You can now follow American Songcatcher on both Instagram and TikTok at American Songcatcher. And for those of you using Apple Podcasts, a rating and review goes a long way. Huge thanks to all the resources used for part one of this program, chiefly the book Johnny Cash, The Life, written by Robert Hilburn. All of the sources are listed in the notes for this episode. And a massive thanks to the community on Patreon. This just would not be possible without you. Our intro song is Payday by Mississippi John Hurt from the Today album. The outro song is 16 Tons, performed by Tennessee Ernie Ford, originally written by Merle Travis. This episode was produced, researched, edited, recorded, and distributed by myself, Nicholas Edward Williams. In the words of Johnny Cash, My arms are too short to box with God. Here's to the songs of old. May they live on forever. See you next time on American Songcatcher. <laughs>